I love the fact that this exhibition is taking the Jewish angle, which is something that's really been underexplored by scholars and critics and fans. If I gave you all the biography on Stanley Kubrick's Jewishness, I wouldn't even get to 2001, but I'll just briefly say he was born in 1928. He had two Jewish parents. Stanley Kubrick was Jewish. He knew he was Jewish. He always felt he was Jewish. He might not have gone to synagogue or temple. We, we don't have temples in Britain, um, but he was Jewish. What I'm going to focus on for this talk is 2001 as Kubrick's Kabbalah. Kabbalah being the Jewish mysticism. 2001 for Kubrick dealt with the big question, what is man? And when I say man, I mean literally the masculine pronoun, you know, man. Kubrick was interested in exploring the human condition, but particularly that of men. And one of the ideas I'm playing with in my book is that Kubrick considered men as meat. And that's very much an idea that runs through 2001. As he was exploring the big question of what is man and what is man's place in the universe and what is man's destiny, it occurred to me as I was watching the film, the film was laden with Jewish symbolism and imagery drawn from Jewish literature, Jewish liturgy, Jewish prayer, uh, from the Bible, from Midrash, the Jewish form of textual interpretation, and Kabbalah. Now, initially, I just thought, I'm reading this into the film. In film studies, it's perfectly legitimate to read a film without caring when it was made, who made it, or anything that the director or anybody else has said about it. And in that tradition, most people had interpreted the film from a, from a sort of Christological Christian perspective. They'd said, well, the star child obviously represents the, the second coming of Christ. Although there's not really any basis in the film for making that assertion, many scholars felt comfortable doing that. So I thought, you know what, Stanley Kubrick's Jewish. Let's do the same thing from a Jewish perspective. Let's just read this film as a Jewish film, and I won't care what Stanley thought. And that was my initial approach, but that troubled me because I'm trained as a historian and I don't like to do that kind of reading. I want to try and anchor it in its period, in its context to say, is there some legitimacy or weight to this reading? And just very briefly, I'm going to talk about the context of the 60s. And as we're in San Francisco, and some of you remember it, uh, I won't tell you too much because you know more than me, if you remember it. This film is very much a product of the counterculture and of the new spiritual movements that were growing in America in the early 60s, where America's youth were rejecting the lifestyles and uh, religious patterns of their parents, and they were experimenting with new Eastern religions, mysticism, Buddhism, Zen, and yoga, and that was very much in vogue. And it's interesting that for this film, Kubrick approached Arthur C. Clarke, who had been living in Sri Lanka for about seven years, a primarily Buddhist country. So already we can see this mystical influence in the film. Secondly, the Jewish response to that was Jews thought, well, we have our own mysticism. And that's when Kabbalah began to become much more popular in the United States. Before it was more esoteric and confined to certain circles, but suddenly Jews began to experiment with their Judaism and Kabbalah was one of the means to do that, to have more exciting Judaism fitting into the spirit of the, of the times. And this was facilitated by the translation into English of the works of Gershom Sholem, who's the major scholar on Kabbalah. And these were translated in the early 60s, late 50s and early 60s. Kubrick read that kind of material. I know this, I've been in his archives, I've seen the kinds of materials he'd read, and I'm pretty certain that he would have been familiar with this material. And if he never read Sholem directly, he probably read Sholem in Commentary Magazine. Some of you might be familiar with Commentary Magazine. 
And the reason I know Kubit Red Commentary Magazine, there's a picture somewhere in the exhibition from Dr. Strangelove, and in there, one of the characters is reading Playboy, and originally that was to be commentary. Yeah, and it kind of says that, that Woody Allen sight gag in Bananas. Do you remember? He's reading a Playboy magazine on the subway, but he's hidden it by commentary on the outside. <laughs> Kubrick, I'm suggesting, is very much influenced by the zeitgeist of the 60s, of the counterculture, of new spiritual movements, and, and of Kabbalah. And to me, this gave me uh, the perfect basis for which to say that if I can read this imagery into the film, I don't think it's just me seeing it there, I think it's deliberate, okay? Because this film really appealed to the younger generation. As, as one person put it, everybody over 30 hated it and everybody under 30 loved it. And it became, in one of the posters, it says, the ultimate trip, okay? So you can see how Kubrick marketed that film. That was probably his decision to come up with that line. At that very generation saying, yeah, go back to the cinema and take your, your, <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm thinking in the UK now, we buy big bags of sweets. So in the 60s, they took their sweets. They just weren't candies, you know? Uh, uh, so he's deliberately playing on that there. And so I think, and, and these are very people who are experimenting with new Eastern traditions and, and, and Kabbalah. Now, just to give you some insight, and I'm just gonna give you a flavor of where I think Kubrick uh, is going, is the film is divided into four stories three of which are separated by an intertitle. The first two sections don't need an intertitle because it's quite clearly obvious that when uh, Moonwatcher, the ape there, chucks his bone into the air, and then in a, the most famous match cut in probably cinematic history, we then have the revolving space station matching it, uh, that we have moved to a second story. Okay, some people are being a bit pernickety, saying there's no title card, it's therefore three stories, right? The reason why four is important, and the film is full of fours. 2001, four digits, 2001, a space odyssey, four words, there are four monoliths, there are four composers, uh, two Strausses, Ligeti and Kachaturian. Um, there's a gap of four million years. There's lots of fours punctuate this film. In fact, lots of fours punctuate all of Kubrick's films. Now, from Fear of Desire, onwards, four droogs of Clockwork Orange. Why do I think that's important? Because automatically having a fourfold structure mirrors the Jewish exegesis uh, of Pardes, form of Pardes. And for those who don't know, that's uh, an acronym for, for Peshat, Remez, Drash, Sod. Okay? And that means simple, clue, interpretation, and secret. This was the traditional way that Jews would penetrate a text through the fourfold. The text has a superficial reading, literally what we're reading, and then as we penetrate deeper, we find the text reveals deeper mysteries. Okay, and the final one, the Kabbalistic one, is Sod. That's the one most susceptible to a Kabbalistic reading. Now, automatically, I would suggest the film mirrors that uh, fourfold structure, and as we watch the film, it gets progressively more complex and elliptical and enigmatic. You know, the first section, the dawn of man, there we go, four, four words, the dawn of man. Um, we have probably the easiest section of the film to understand, and I'm pointing to the ape here. Here's Moonwatcher, okay? He's called Moonwatcher in the novel, we know this. One of the ideas I like is, how do we know that Moonwatcher is Jewish? Because Jews are obsessive about the moon, right? Now, how else do we know? Who else are Moonwatchers? Us, so we know when our festivals are. I say that a bit in jest, but there's a long tradition of comparing Jews to apes both in Jewish and anti-Semitic literature. Hitler did it, but Kafka did it in a story called A Report to the Academy where an ape 
learns, he, he analogizes the Jewish condition to that of an ape. And that inspired Nabokov to write Lolita, and then in which, which Kubrick adapts in 62. Now, that's not the basis of my whole claim for this, and I know that would be a weak one. The Dawn of Man very much replicates Genesis. Okay, you come into the cinema, the cinema's dark, you know, Ovu Vatohu, uh, out of the void, you hear the sounds of the music, it's not quite music, the intro, so you know something's happening, but you're in the void, and suddenly there's light, the light of the cinema projector, let, let there be light, and what do we see? Metro Goldwyn Mayer, okay? Otherwise known as Myers Gunzer Mishpacha, Okay, Myers big family, who boasted that they have more stars in the galaxy. And then we see the name of the creator, Stanley Kubrick. If Stanley Kubrick was to do creation, he would do it on 70 millimeter Panavision, better than, uh, than our maker. Uh, and there's a little joke that goes along with that, that just quickly, when you might have heard this, when, Mo when Steven Spielberg goes to heaven, he wants to see Stanley Kubrick, but he's told Stanley Kubrick is busy, uh, but then he sees an old man wandering around with some carrier bags and a beard, looking quite disheveled, and he said, well, I thought Stanley Kubrick was busy, and Archangel Gabriel says, no, that's not Stanley Kubrick, that's God. He just thinks he's Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> so this is Stanley Kubrick doing creation, and what we see in that opening section as the ape touches the monolith is very much a replaying of the Garden of Eden, of the eating of the uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, subsequently, he learns to use weapons. We have the first killing that replicates Cain, it also suggests, in the use of a bone, Samson, who used the jawbone of an ass to smite uh, 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 thousands of Philistines. Um, it also suggests the dry bones of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, around this time, any of you familiar with Erich von Daniken's work, The Chariots of the Gods, where aliens built the pyramids and the Mayan and Incan temples? This was popularized in the late 60s. He draws upon Ezekiel, okay, because Ezekiel's full of rushing ships with four faces. As, as, as the text for that. So there's references to the dry bones, resurrection of Ezekiel, which I'll come back to, in the first section. So the first section already, I think, is very susceptible to biblical imagery. What else do the, does the monolith look like? It looks like a book. So we could think about, Mad Magazine actually said it was a giant book of how to make the most boring six million movie ever. <laughs> um, it's worth having a look at that. It reminds me of Kafka's The Parable uh, uh, Before the Law. Um, one could suggest that it's the edifice of Jewish law, maybe a Ten Commandments, but with nothing, no commandments inscribed. Don't know if you know where Stanley Kubrick did put Ten Commandments in the film. Anyone? Oh, yeah. yeah, go on. The, uh, the exactly. In the second section, when Dr. Hayward Floyd is flying to the moon, there is the zero gravity toilet, which has Ten Commandments. This is Kubrick's, I think, New York Jewish sense of humor that he won't put them on the slab, he'll put them on the toilet, okay? Because, not least, one has to think, what would happen if you didn't obey all the commandments? And we know that because in the film, we have Hayward Floyd's pen floating. I'll just let you connect that image in your head and I'll move on. So in the second section, we're provided a few more clues but we, uh, to what the monolith is. Okay, but we don't answer the questions. Uh, it's the tychomagnetic anomaly. We know it's an extraterrestrial uh, monolith. The other point I should mention, monoliths are very important in the Bible. 
whenever there was a, a holy place in Canaanite Israelite culture, they erected a monolith. Okay, and one example is when Jacob has a dream of the angels ascending to heaven up and down a ladder, you know, clearly a suggestion of, uh, of space travel, he erected a monolith. Okay, so monoliths have cultic, biblical significance, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons he chose this blank slab for it. In the third section, it's 18 months later. 18 is, if we use gematria, is the uh, Hebrew term for chai, life, double nine, so double life, and, and the ship is very much full of uterine of, uh, imagery, of replicating reproductive imagery in the way that it looks. In this section, we have the computer how. I don't have time, but I would argue, some people have argued as to what how is, that it's IBM or that how's the world's first gay computer. If you the IBM connection, how, IBM, if you move the letter one place um, forward. Um, I would suggest that how's a Jewish mother computer, but I don't have time for this. <laughs> but here I'm going to suggest how's God, okay? Um, he's, he's, he's the Goliath figure and God that David kills, David destroys, okay? Uh, two reasons I'll make this. One, when the little pod, which there's pictures somewhere, facing off against the ship, it, it resembles David against Goliath. And the astronaut's called David Bowman, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Secondly, how one could, uh, he's the omniscient, omnipresent power aboard the ship, but who has no physical form. Okay, just like the Jewish God, although he has an eye, which was actually Kubrick's eye through the lens. So Kubrick is God. And David, in order to move to the next stage of evolution, has to destroy this Goliath or this, or this God. The other argument one could make is that Hal is very much like the Hebrew Ha'el, the God. And this fits into the other theme of the film, which is the opening music is Thus Spoke Zarathustra, the Nietzschean idea that man will become an overman, or the mensch will become the ubermensch, opens the film. Um, and it was Nietzsche who proclaimed the death of God. And death of God theologies were very prominent in the early 60s, amongst Jews and non-Jews. Uh, is God Dead featured on the cover of Time magazine. And then um, that Time magazine cover featured in Rosemary's Baby, the film, which came out in the same year, and you think Roman Polanski, Stanley Kubrick, two Jewish directors with very similar trajectories in their films. It's worth comparing them. At the end of Rosemary's Baby, we have this new antichrist with strange eyes. Kubrick suggests a new messiah at the end of his film with strange eyes. So people who think that Kubrick is negative just compare to the end of Polanski's Rosemary's Baby. So, so in this middle section, David... I'm comparing him now to King David, who slaughters Goliath, and that's why I think Kubrick gave him the name David. Arthur C. Clarke wanted the name Alexander, but he was saving that for his next film, Clockwork Orange. And David Bowman, Bowman is also a bow player. I know a lot of people have compared this to Homer's Odyssey. So David Bowman is Odysseus, who comes home. But I think the little clues in the title, he doesn't call it 2001 an Odyssey. He calls it 2001 a space Odyssey. So to give you a little clue, this is something not quite right here. This isn't a strict interpretation. In the final section is the most mystical section, okay? David is going to Jupiter and beyond the infinite. So Jupiter, the king of the gods, the, the Roman version of Zeus, and beyond the infinite. Now, if we translated infinite into Hebrew, that would be Ein Sof, Ein Sof without end. If we then translate back into English, is another name for God and a Kabbalistic name for God. So in his use of terminology, I'm suggesting Kubrick is inserting Kabbalistic imagery. 
Now, David reincarnates at the end of this into the star child. And he undergoes metempsychosis or reincarnation or transmigration of the souls, whichever word you want to use. The term I like to use is uh, the Hebrew term Gilgul, which can mean revolution. Uh, Golgelet in Hebrew is a skull. And remember, when Moonwatcher is smashing the bones, prominent on the screen is a skull. So Gilgul, Golgelet connected in the film. And it, the reason why I like the term Kilgul is that when that was translated, when Kafka was translated into Yiddish, the term they used for metamorphosis was Gilgul. And Kubrick loved Kafka. And I've already given you one Kafka or several Kafka-esque references. So this Gilgul is a metamorphosis where Dave doesn't become a giant roach, whatever creature you think he is. He becomes this star child. And he becomes the second messiah, uh, or the messiah, sorry. There was no... Yeah. I've just fallen into my own trap. He becomes the Messiah. He returns to earth uh, in a new form as the Messiah. And I think it's important that we relate this to the house of David because in Jewish tradition, the Messiah will come from the Davidic line. And I think that's one of the reasons why Stanley Kubrick called him David rather than Alexander, to give it a much more Jewish spin. And just another example, originally how was to be called Athena, you know, as in the protector of Odysseus, but very much anchors it into a Greek tradition. By renaming Athena how, it gives us the ability to read other interpretations in because it doesn't anchor into any specific one. And so therefore, that gives me the space, I would argue, to say that what Kubrick's doing in here is a Jewish interpretation. And just as the final piece of this jigsaw is, and I should have said this earlier, and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop, is... Kubrick's original vision for 2001 was very different in 1964-1965. It was going to be a much more didactic film with a prologue of theologians and scientists talk about extraterrestrial life. There was going to be more narrative exposition. There was going to be longer scenes. There was going to be a voiceover narrative. There was going to be a score composed by Alex North, who did the score for Spartacus. Um, in fact, one of the little nice things that Kubrick did is Kubrick used Kachaturian's Guyana Suite and which is part of his Spartacus ballet. Nice little, uh, uh, little, little connection there. The film we understand 2001 to be was the product of the, of the 60s, the late 60s, 66 to 68. That's what made it the film it was. It was very different in 64. And, and so something happened in those years that made Kubrick change his mind and made this into the film it was. And I'm not 100% sure what it was. One could say it might have been the death of his second wife in 67. It might have been the Six-Day War which made Jews much more conscious of the Holocaust, of Jewish theologies, of M.L. Fackenheim's 614th commandment. It, it might have been all the mysticism going around, the, the implicit violence that was going to happen in 68. You think of the extremely violent year 68 was. You might have seen the signs for that. So something happened, I think, for Kubrick to go down this more metaphysical, spiritual, Kabbalistic route. And, and hopefully I've shown you some ways that you can read that into the film. So thank you very much. Okay.